Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition is slightly unusual. It's longer than normal, and it's about finance. That's because I've taken the opportunity to talk to my FT colleague, Dan McCrum, about his extraordinary investigation into Wirecard, which exposed a multi-billion dollar fraud and caused the collapse of one of Germany's most celebrated firms. As you'll hear, it's a story full of skullduggery, which raises disturbing questions about the financial system and the extent of corporate fraud. So, what happened at Wirecard? And how many similar frauds are waiting to be discovered? I work in a different subject area of the FT from Dan McCrum, and for many years I saw very little of him. That may have been partly because he was spending a great deal of time locked away in a secured office, working on a computer that was deliberately not connected to the internet to avoid being hacked. Dan was engaged in a long-running battle to prove fraud at one of Germany's most successful new companies. Here's Wirecard's chief executive in 2019, shrugging off the allegations. Do not too much look into controversies, but my message is I think we have a very strong year before us. Uh, We are concentrated on technology innovations. The whole digital payment area is still early stage. So, of course, in many areas we we are pioneers. But in 2020, many years of sleuthing came to spectacular fruition. Prosecutors have arrested three former top executives of the scandal-hit payments company Wirecard. They were detained on suspicion of running an organised criminal enterprise. The former chief executive of the German payments firm, Marcus Braun, has been re-arrested. He has been accused of committing a multi-year fraud after Wirecard's collapse in June. Dan McCrum's now written a book about his investigation called Money Men, which I found more thrilling than most thrillers, revealing as it did a strange netherworld of financial speculators, private detectives, bumbling accountants and outright criminals. When Dan joined me in the FT studio, I started by asking him when he first heard the name Wirecard. I was chatting to a hedge fund manager, an Australian guy called John Hempton. He knew the sorts of stories I was interested in, which is sort of corporate frauds, companies with a bit of skullduggery about them. And he just says to me, so Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? So I say, yeah, of course. I mean, who wouldn't be? So I jot the name down, have a look at it. And nobody had really heard of Wirecard at this point. It did something to do with payments, called itself the European PayPal. And it was sort of an up and coming fintech. But when I looked at its business, it just didn't make any sense. And so I took a look at it, but I couldn't really work out what was going on. Then another hedge fund manager gets in touch, and surprise, surprise, he's also looked at Wirecard. Because it was almost too good to be true, because it was growing really, really quickly, but was also incredibly profitable at the same time. And it's quite hard to do both. And what it turned out, there were two theories about what was going on. One was, it's faking its profits. 
this accounting fraud. But the other was that maybe it has got a real business, but it's involved effectively in money laundering. It's processing payments for every unsavory character that you might find online. So I set to work thinking, okay, there's definitely something here, and sort of came down on the, hmm, this looks a bit fraudy. And at what point do you become convinced there really is something bad going on there? Is it really quite quickly? So straight away, everything looks a bit off. You know, numbers don't add up. This idea that there's accounting fraud going on really seems to make sense. But what sort of also convinces us is every interaction with the company is a bit off-kilter. So usually when you're the Financial Times and you approach a small tech company and say, hey, can we give you some publicity? I'd like to interview your chief executive. They usually go, yeah, great. But Wirecard were very reluctant. So then I send them a bunch of, you know, quite detailed questions about their accounting and they go, oh, hang on a second. This is very suspicious. A short seller also asked us some similar questions. Are you in league with them? We're concerned you might be naively being used by these guys to manipulate our share price. And it's kind of like, oh, we've hit a nerve here. But also that's just weird. It's quite strange to respond to a journalist by saying, are you corrupt? And from there, everything just got weirder and weirder and things steadily started to escalate. And did you ever have a kind of moment of doubt that maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree? Because after all, you're a journalist, be a one guy. I mean, you've obviously got a flair for this. But then there were all these institutional investors piling in behind it. Presumably, they're meant to be professionals. They're meant to know what they're doing. So why could you see something that they couldn't or wouldn't see? They had a certain confirmation bias. They were looking for the next big thing. And so I think what Wirecard did very effectively was tick that box. And then you don't think about it too much more deeply. You know, the share price keeps going up. Well done. You're very clever. You made a good investment. The bias I was looking for was I was looking for fraud. And so I kept seeing things which convinced me. And there's this key moment where I do get the interview with the chief executive. This guy called Marcus Brown. This is what, a couple of years in, is it? Oh, this is way back in 2014. The one time I spoke to him, he later became sort of, you know, the tech visionary. Dressed himself up in a black turtleneck like he's a new Steve Jobs. And, you know, made all these sort of empty statements about the cashless society and, you know, technological change. Perfect for Davos, I'd imagine. Exactly. Very Davos crowdy. And I do this interview with him, ask him a bunch of, you know, normal questions, get something on tape. And then I flat out ask him, you know, looks like you're hiding something. Is there some fraud going on here? I mean, this is one of the fun things about being a journalist. You get to ask rude questions like that. And his answer was very strange. Because on the one hand, his words were angry. Like, I think he said, that's bullshit. But then he did a few different things which are like notable ways that you can lie when you're answering a question. So it was like, why would I do this? You know, why would I risk my reputation? Look at all the outside authorities who think we're great. Ernst & Young, the big accounting firm, look after our books. But his sort of tone was really flat. And that just really stuck in my mind as that's not normal. Normal people get angry if you say you were crook. Well, I'm kind of impressed by your confidence because I read that chapter. And obviously, I'm not on the finance side, but I would have been intimidated when he said, look, Ernst & Young, one of the big four accounting firms, have been on all over our books. Why do you know better than them? Naively, I assumed, if Ernst & Young audit you and you're a fraudster, they'd see it. I think you have lots of people with incentives to see companies as great and encourage the next big thing. You know, managers, bankers, lawyers are all getting paid for, you know, selling great things. And also, 
most companies aren't frauds. So it's quite unusual, and they're just not looking for that. What if they had been looking? I mean, there were, as you discovered, large amounts of cash that weren't there, offices that weren't there. Why couldn't they see it? So I think what these frauds do is they manipulate institutional psychology. It's not like Marcus Brown was a huckster who's trying to sell some American tourists a bridge or something like that. He wasn't really lying to people directly. And he, you know, he still claims he's innocent and he was a victim in this whole thing. We'll probably get to that. But what they manipulate is this sort of institutional psychology. So you assume because reputable people are involved, someone has checked. You know, Wirecard had been listed for pretty much a decade at this point. And so I think when you look around the table and say, oh, there are reputable bankers and lawyers and accountants involved, everyone assumes that the other people wouldn't be there if this was a fraud. Well, it's quite an interesting insight, isn't it, into the professional services, really, that they're not that professional. Yeah, and, um, and I think what Wirecard also manipulated effectively was the way they worked. So there is an element of sort of box ticking. They never really stand back and say, hang on a second, should we be suspicious about the whole thing? It was, okay, we have to look at this particular issue which has been raised, and can we have a document or something which allows us to tick that box? Right. You mentioned, you know, the early encounter with Brown, where it's still kind of fun, you know, you can see there's something there. But it stops being fun or becomes much more stressful quite soon, doesn't it? Because they kind of set the dogs on you, don't they, in terms of surveillance, legal threats, and so on. How does the pressure ramp up? So it sort of escalates slowly but substantially. and. To begin with, you know, I start getting lots of legal letters from Shillings, an aggressive reputation defence firm in London. Quite popular with Russians as well, I think. Yes, the oligarchs have been using that. Joe Lowe, the 1MDB fraudster, he was another client. So great guys, do tremendous work, and they sent us some threatening letters saying, I didn't know what I was talking about, the FT was putting us at risk. Then we start to realise that we're all getting these phishing emails, which are trying to break into our own boxes. And then so are other people who have been identified as critics of Wirecard. So now we've got hackers involved. Then um, some other short sellers start getting followed around by private detectives. A pair of them come and knock on his door at about 8 o'clock on a Friday night to deliver a letter. And these are reputable private detectives. It's Kroll, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So that was Kroll who turn up. That's quite intimidating. And, you know, he, the guy had already realized he'd been followed around. And that has a very chilling effect. You know, makes you take all these sorts of precautions to protect yourself, protect your sources. And, you know, I mean, and I talk about it in the book, I make a bit of a mistake, which leaves us a little bit open to getting sued. So that all sort of starts to escalate. But then um, if I jump forward, what happens is I write all the stories. They attract some interest. Then some short sellers come along and they come at it from the other side. They go, OK, maybe it's not accounting fraud, but it's money laundering. That creates a lot of attention. And they get investigated by the German authorities for trying to manipulate Wirecard share price. And the upshot of it all is both theories that I talked about have had a thorough airing and nothing's happened. And it's a young sign off on the accounts again. The German regulator is going after Wirecard's critics. So the share price starts going through the roof. I basically give up on the story because, you know, I've tried my best. And we get to September 2018. And Wirecard enters the DAX index, which is, you know, the equivalent of like the FTSE 100, one of Germany's most celebrated, largest, successful listed companies. And it's seen in Germany, I think, as the next big thing. 
here's a new tech company. Suddenly, they've got a modern company which can rival the greats of Silicon Valley. And that's a big deal. And it's at that moment that this sort of magical, amazing thing happens. A whistleblower gets in touch. Actually, it's a whistleblower's mother who reaches out to me. Her son is a lawyer who worked inside Wirecard's Asian headquarters. He conducted this investigation into some members of their finance team. They found that guys were faking contracts and forging invoices, things like that, for small amounts, you know, 2 million euros here, 2 million euros there, which is serious. You know, you should do something about it. But when this investigation was sent to head office, it gets squashed and the lawyer gets forced out and his mum isn't going to let them get away with it. She's this amazing Sikh woman who, you know, she's raised by immigrants, forced into an arranged marriage, kicks out her alcoholic husband and raises her son herself. You know, she trains to be a banker, has to take him to business meetings. And so he becomes a successful lawyer. And so she knows how business is supposed to be done. And it's not like this. So she sends me an email. And she's presumably just seen that you've written about the subject. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the phrase I use is, you know, stories get stories. Because I'd written the earlier Wirecard story, she thought, okay, Dan's going to be interested. So she sends me this email and tells me about her son. And it's like, this is it. Finally, something from the inside. And so I fly to Singapore, meet him, and he's got all the internal documents, everything. And so we publish. And that's kind of the moment in January 2019 when everything starts to go really crazy. And when you say go really crazy, what does happen next? We publish the story and Wirecard says, not true at all. And by the way, we think there's been some very suspicious trading. And we think the FT has leaked its story to market speculators. So they can trade ahead of it and make a big profit. Meanwhile, the story's had quite an effect. I mean, it knocks 8 billion euros off the value of the company. How do you feel like going home on the train that night thinking you've wiped 8 billion off a company? I mean, it's a funny feeling. You're like, wow, I really hope this is right. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that sort of sick feeling in your stomach where you're like, oh, blimey, this is really working, isn't it? So, you know, it's mixed emotions. And then this sort of thing happens where, you know, they accuse us of being corrupt and Germany starts taking it really seriously. The allegation that you're corrupt. Yeah, so the allegation that we're corrupt. So to begin with, the German authorities, the prosecutors in Munich, let it be known that they don't see any evidence of Germans breaking German laws in Germany. And we're sort of scratching our head going, what? This is a big public company. You know, we're publishing evidence of fraud. And at this stage, the numbers are quite small. You know, we're talking about $30 million worth of contracts in a $2 billion euros a year company. So what they do is they make the mistake of looking at the numbers instead of the practices. You know, why on earth wasn't this guy fired? Why was there this cover-up with the questions they should have been asking? So sort of Germany Inc. says, ah, seems like they're dealing with it. It's fine. And then the German authorities say, actually, we're going to take this market manipulation thing very seriously. And they announce an investigation into me and uh, my colleague Stefania Palmer in Singapore, who wrote the stories with me. And I thought the world was going mad at that point. Because you're, sort of, you're doing your best work. You're saying, hey, here's a great story. And you end up being investigated. And do you think that's part of, if you like, German culture? I mean, you mentioned they wanted a, a tech champion. But also, I mean, I remember this during the euro crisis, when the euro was really under pressure. German officials who I knew, who I thought were very sensible people, were suddenly saying you know, this is all being got up by hedge funds in collaboration with the FT. I think they've got this suspicion 
of the Anglo-Saxon financial world and think under pressure, they think we're all in it together. Was something like that going on? I mean, I think there was a little flavour of sort of Anglo-Saxon capitalist disdain. Or disdain for Anglo-Saxon capitalism. Or disdain for, yeah, Anglo-Saxon capitalism. I don't know, maybe it's the distance. It was easier to believe that, um, you know, oh, those guys over in London, they're all corrupt. But I think there's more to it than that, because I think in some sense we can thank Trump. You know, this label of fake news has become so incredibly effective. Comets Bank, the German investment bank, actually used it about that first story. They put out an analyst note saying, this is fake news from the usual suspect, Dan McCrum. And I think one of the surprises for us was inside the Financial Times, you think we have a certain reputation. People take us seriously. And it was quite startling to be saying, well, hang on a second, don't they know how we work? Do you think Lionel Barber is going to let this one rogue journalist run around using the FT for his own personal vendetta? It was very strange and hard to understand. Also, talk us through the kind of precautions you were having to take in the course of your reporting. I mean, you were using a computer, for example, that was not plugged into the internet, locking your computer away in a vault every night. Yeah, so air-gapped was the term they used, sort of, you know, it couldn't connect to the internet. That's obviously to avoid hacking. Yeah, because we were very concerned about Wirecard's hacking capabilities. Whenever we have conversations about the story, we would put our phones in another room because we weren't sure that we could trust those. Um, And also we were very concerned about protecting the identity of our key whistleblower. So very few people, I mean, only about three or four people inside the FT, which didn't include Lionel, knew who the identity of this guy was. And Lionel was okay with that? Yeah, I mean, I can vividly remember the meeting where he sort of says, I don't want to know who this guy is, but just tell me about him. You know, why do you trust him? What are his motives? We would have meeting after meeting where, you know, it's very strange to have the editor of the newspaper going line by line through your copy and sort of calling out errors and testing every sentence. Because I think we all realized the significance of it. And I think I mentioned that, you know. In one of the meetings, our in-house lawyer, Nigel, says, we're going to have to assume that they'll sue us anyway because they've got the resources, and so they may just do it. And so you're having to work in these peculiar circumstances. Were you being surveilled, followed, and that kind of thing throughout all this? So there's an element that I hadn't told you about I think there's a Russian connection here. So one of the main bad guys is called Jan Maslak. And he's this Austrian whiz kid, incredibly charming, dropped out of high school to start a tech company, becomes one of Wirecard's senior executives. And he's the one who's running around, keeping all the plates spinning, organizing the fraud, organizing the countermeasures against us. And what I learn over time is that he doesn't really know what he's doing But he seems to sort of improvise these harebrained schemes and get away with it. At the same time, he's making some very strange friends. Like he wants to get friendly with Libyan militias. And he's hanging out with Russian mercenaries. I worked on all these stories with a very experienced editor called Paul Murphy. And one day he pulls me aside, says, right, we need to have a chat away from any electronics. And so Paul has picked up this intel that as he's trying to impress some of these speculators in London, he's flashing around top-secret documents with the recipe for the nerve gas Novichok on it. Is this before or after the attempted murder of Skripal? Well, it was. It was after Skripal. It was, um, you know, documents relating to the top-secret investigation into that, you know, with the Russian objections on them. Right. 
But at that point, we don't know how he's got these or really what it's about, just that he seems to have some like Russian intelligence connections. And when you learn that, well, we start being even more paranoid about security than you were before. And, you know, you start doing things like, I, uh, I certainly wouldn't stand near the edge of tube platforms. And how do you, in fact, keep your cool? Because, I mean, it's hard enough when you're imagining things, but, you know, some of this was, was very real. <laughs> you know, are you at any point tempted to put it to one side or take a break? Um, I mean, the pressure sort of amped up and amped up. And it felt like we were in this battle that we couldn't walk away from. Because Wirecard accused me of being corrupt and the FT of being corrupt. And I'm being investigated by the German police. You know, there is these strange moments where I'm like, oh, now I've got some criminal lawyers to add to my civil lawyers because they then threatened to, well, they did sue us. They named me personally in the suit. And so on the one hand, there's this sense of, well, the world's going crazy. And the only way through it is to prove that these guys are crooks. I mean, you asked about the surveillance. So we become aware that there are this team of 30 private detectives running around London. 30. 30. The people involved were told it was the largest private surveillance operation ever undertaken in London. And they were also told that the police were aware of it. And, you know, it's impossible to tell whether the, either of those things are true, really. And, you know, we were shown photos of some of the surveillance efforts. And one of the private detectives who's been flipped is talking to Paul Murphy, and he just says to him, well, I had thought about this one idea, but we decided we didn't need to do it yet, which is the old gangland trick, to plant drugs in my car and then call the police. And when you learn about stuff like that, that's kind of terrifying because that would just blow up our lives. I remember talking to my wife about it and she's, you know, what did she say? Something like, oh my God, you know, you know how this ends. The guys with the most money always win. It sort of brings some of the adrenaline back, uh, talking about it. Yeah, it, it got to be quite intense. But you managed to, as you say, fight your way through it. We'll get to the climax of the story in a minute, but we both worked with Lionel Barber for a long time. He's now retired as editor. But I was, I must say, impressed by the way he handled it because he had to do two things, be determined to let you follow the story, but also not be reckless in doing that and kind of protect the paper. How did he strike that balance? And were there any points where you thought, okay, maybe we're going to fall out here and he's not going to back me? So I think we were very lucky to get Lionel right at the end of his career, where, you know, he'd been editor for almost 13 years at that point, I think. And he wanted stories that hurt the people who didn't want them written. You know, he was very clear about that. So he'd sort of committed to wanting big investigations. And when this one came along, because of our experience with Wirecard, he knew the sort of company we were dealing with. I mean, uh, we'd have moments in these meetings where um, it would always be me, Paul Murphy, Lionel Barber, and our lawyer, Nigel Hansen. And uh, every time we sort of would reach an impasse, Paul would go, hang on a second, hang on. We know we're dealing with a criminal company here. And he would sort of push us through. And I think Lionel was very good at being very careful. He was personally testing the evidence. He wanted to know, okay, can that really be real? What's the sourcing? And so I think because he was so involved, he then had the real confidence in us. But he also has to start, or he does, whether he has to or not, he starts an internal investigation against you at some point, yeah? Yeah, and so there's this moment where Wirecard comes up with a tape recording where you have a London nightclub owner having a conversation with a representative of a sort of Far Eastern money man claiming that he knows a Financial Times story on Wirecard is coming 
and that he's been leaked it by the head of the investigations team, which sounds really bad. Would be market manipulation, etc. Would be market manipulation, insider trading. And at that point, Wirecard starts leaking it to the German press and Handelsblatt is running these lurid stories saying, oh, allegations of corruption at the Financial Times. And Lionel was very clear. He knew we weren't corrupt. But at that point, he also had to protect the reputation of the Financial Times. And he also said, you know, tactically, because we knew we had a big story coming. Unless we cleared the air of all the corruption stuff, it just wouldn't land. You know, one of our great frustrations was we're writing these stories saying, look, smoking gun evidence that Wirecard's claiming to do business with companies that don't exist. But it's getting waved away. So he said, you know, for the good of the FT and to like clear the air, we're going to hire an outside law firm in and they're going to do a full investigation. And I mean, I don't think he realized quite how long or how expensive that process would become because once you let the lawyers in, clock starts whirring and, you know, the billable hours start racking up. Yeah. And they ask, I guess, questions that seem reasonable to a lawyer, but very unreasonable to a journalist. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the, the whole thing was kind of maddening. Because also, we knew we weren't corrupt. We knew we hadn't leaked the story. Mm. Okay, so fast forward. You're under this enormous pressure. You've had these incredible leaks from the inside, but the pressure on you is mounting. At what point and how does the dam break? So what happens is, I've been given this huge cache of documents by the whistleblower. I mean, 70 gigabytes of material, multiple inboxes. And I had spent two months essentially in a bunker going through all the documents, trying to work out what's happening. Is what the whistleblower is telling us true? Can we prove it? But also I've been trying to work out what on earth is going on inside the company? Because so much about it doesn't make sense. And um, in the spring, I don't know, I think it was May or June 2020, a couple of things had made me go back to one of the documents that I found. And it was this spreadsheet which had 30, 35 customers of Wirecard in it. And I start looking at the names and I'm like, hang on a second. I don't think that one was in business at that point. So I went and checked and um, it was a broker which had been shut down by the US authorities. Huh. Well, how is it still a customer of Wirecard then? And then I start looking at some of the other names and it's like this light bulb moment. Hang on a second. That's not real. That can't be real. The whole thing is fake. And I couldn't believe it was so simple. They were just making up transactions. They were literally just making the whole thing up. And it took a while to sort of prove it and go through and, you know, all these endless calls to all these companies trying to prove the case. But what we did is we realized, hang on a second, we can show how they're faking this large section of their profits and their sales. And what we did as well is we published the underlying documents. And I think that was really key in turning the tide because investors could look at those and go, well, hang on, these just look authentic. There was too much information. It would have been incredibly hard to fake it all. And that was the thing which I think set in motion Wirecard's collapse. I mean, we published it in October 2019. And the thing which still amazes me is it took another eight months to collapse. And it came down to two pieces of paper. And the chapter on it in the book is one of my absolute favorites because it was so fun to write because it just has the quality of farce. So Wirecard is forced to announce effectively a similar to our internal investigation. They'll bring in a new outside party and a new accounting firm, KPMG, to go over the work of the first. And it comes down to this question of, well, where is all of Wirecard's money? And Wirecard's explanation is, ah, oh, we've got this guy in Manila who's looking after nearly 2 billion euros of cash. 
And so they all troop out there, sort of this delegation from the two different sets of accountants, a bunch of wirecard lawyers, and they all go to this office in Manila. And it turns out the guy is a YouTube star who mainly focuses on family law. And he's got a camera set up in his office and one of those little plaques from YouTube saying he's got 100,000 online subscribers. And he gives advice on things like adultery and divorce. And this is the guy who Wirecard has got to look after 2 billion euros of its cash. And it comes down to sort of they're given these two pieces of paper, which basically say the money is in some special accounts. That's in March. And after three months of not really having much more evidence that the business exists, the accountants at EY are starting to get a little bit nervous. And so someone seeing it gets in touch with the chief executives at the bank. And it's like, we've been trying to get an answer out of you guys. Could you please take a look at these accounts and just confirm that everything's above board? And they both send back a letter saying, um, these accounts are spurious. And so the first thing which happens is everyone in Germany has to Google the word spurious because it's quite an obscure English word. And then all hell breaks loose. And basically within about a day or two, Wirecard has to admit, uh, well, to begin with, they say, two billion euros of our money is missing. And that excuse lasts about 24 hours and then the whole thing collapses. And where are the main characters now? I mean, Marcelek, you mentioned, Marcus Brown, who you interviewed, what's happened to them? So the turtleneck wearing Marcus Brown is in jail. He is due to go on trial probably starting in September with two alleged conspirators. And that trial is probably going to take at least six months, quite a long time. And one of the guys is cooperating and the other two are denying everything. And what Marcus Brown claims, because he ran this company for 15 years and he was a billionaire due to his stake in it. And he claims he's a victim, that he had no idea what was going on and that his protege, Jan Marslek, set up the whole thing and basically robbed him blind. Jan Marslek, in another example of terrific German prosecutorial competence, was allowed to leave the country. So Wirecard collapses, and the next day, Jan Marslek gets on a private plane in Vienna and flies to Belarus and hasn't been seen since. Belarus. Belarus. And there's been quite a lot of reporting in the German press around this, and I think we have firmed up some of this as well. So Jan Marslek is currently thought to be in the suburbs of Moscow. Right. I mean, it's an incredible story in itself, but it also has made me think more about you know the financial system, about the business world and so on. Do you believe that Wirecard was a kind of weird one-off? Or are there other Wirecards out there, big companies that are frauds? I mean, the twists and the turns and the dirty tricks they used make Wirecard a crazy example of fraud. It's sort of, it's got everything that you see in all these other different frauds and criminal enterprises all crammed into this one story, which just gets madder and madder. But the thing is, I think there's quite a few other big frauds out there. I mean, I'm certainly continuing to do investigations for the FT and I'm keeping busy. And I think what we've seen as well is this sort of culture in finance for a decade where money has been free. And one of the things Wirecard did, which a lot of businesses have done, was sort of sprinkle technology over quite an ordinary business and then claim that that technology has made it extraordinary somehow. And we've seen a lot of that in markets. I mean... You know, there's a bit of a crash going on in crypto at the moment. But that promise of the new, that sort of human greed to look for easy money, 
I mean, those are age-old stories, and they repeat time and again. And the ability of people to be bamboozled by apparent success. Yes. I mean, and I think one of the things about it is what's kind of unique about stock fraud is that for a long time, the victims think that they're doing really well. So the company's success becomes your success. I picked a great stock. Look how much money I'm making. And so people become completely invested in the success. You know, I talked about the institutional psychology, but when you are really professionally, financially, but also, you know, just you're enthusiastic, when you're invested in something, you don't sort of approach it on an analytical level. You approach it as sort of more of an emotional level. So they're emotionally as well as financially invested. Yes. And so you explain away things that you shouldn't. I mean, I've spoken to lots of former Wirecard employees and, you know, several of them would talk about individual things that they had seen whilst they worked there that looking back, they now sort of slap themselves. Oh my God, why didn't I see this? But at the time, they're just like, oh, that's a bit funny, but never mind. You know, it's spin or it's just the weird way the company works. That was Dan McCrum of the FT ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Next week, I'll be in Helsinki, so please join me again. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.